Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. On today's episode, we speak with Isaac Garcia-Sitton, who is Executive Director of International Student Enrollment, Education, and Inclusion at Toronto Metropolitan University. Isaac and podcast host Shauna Cox discuss the recent changes made on international student policies in Canada and the role strategic enrollment management and retention will play as a result of this. Isaac, welcome to the Illumination Podcast. It's great to be chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So there's a lot going on right now in Canada when it comes to international students and policy changes around these students. So to start off, could you briefly describe the changes the Canadian federal government have made to its international student visa policy? I'm not sure how brief I can be about the changes because there's a lot there to unpack. Mm -hmm. I certainly will um, sort of give you an an idea of what's happening. Before I actually dive into the changes themselves, it is important to note that these are in the backdrop of other changes that were announced that are related to this and leading up to this. So for instance, there has been an announcement by the government, the IRCC, so the federal government around It used to be called a recognized institutions framework. Now they change it to a trusted institution framework, and that's somewhat related to this. Beyond that, there were also changes in in regards to the cost of living requirements for study permit um, applicants. Essentially, they double it from 10,000 to 20,000. It impacts a lot of our students in the college sector. And then in addition to that, last fall, they also implemented the enhanced verification process for the LOA, so the letter of acceptance. So that process was not only uh, announced, but it has been already implemented. So let's dive into the latest round of changes or announcements. Mm -hmm. So the biggest one had to do, obviously, with the cap of international enrollment. And the government announced, IRCC announced, that there would be a two-year cap on the number of international students, uh, or the study permits, rather. And they're expected to be around 364,000 or an overall 35% reduction. Um, that's at the federal level. That's how many students can, they, how many study permits they will be allocating. As we all know, um, in Canada, um, education needs a provincial mandate. So the federal the government made this announcement and then they are asking the provinces and territories to be responsible for the allocation of the individual caps by institution in their own provinces. But as part of the announcement, there were some exceptions. So master's and PhD level programs are exempted. Students that already um, have a study permit in the country are also exempted. And in addition to that, there was a moratorium on all new study permit processing from the moment of the announcement, which was about two weeks ago, until mm-hmm. March 31st, which is the deadline that the feds gave the provinces and territories to have this new process in place. As part of this process, um, there is a new provincial attestation letter that each province has to issue for each one of the students that are applying to a study permit. The other parts of the changes and announcements had to do with the postgraduate work permit eligibility. And as of uh, September 1st, the PGWP, which is the postgraduate work permit, will be no longer available for private and public institutions. Mm-hmm. And then there's some provisions around um, spousal, um, spouses of students in the master and PhD programs. But in a nutshell, those are some of the main uh, changes that are happening right now. 
Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I want to thank you so much for unpacking that because that is a lot of changes and a lot to go through. So thank you for kind of laying that out in a really nice, clean manner. We try so, to keep up with all the changes. They, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, nominally, these changes were introduced in a response to the nationwide shortage of affordable housing. So how do you expect these proposed changes to actually address that issue? Yeah, this has been a very sort of heated component of the, mm. the announcement. So the proposed changes, yes, may tem temporarily reduce um, the demand for housing in, like, I guess, the major urban centers. So mm -hmm. I don't know, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. But it doesn't really resolve the housing crisis that has been decades in the making. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't think it necessarily will address significantly the actual issue with housing supply. Um, that needs to be that needs to be considered in a different from from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. The fact is that both levels of government have supported the growth of international enrollment in Canada without paying attention to the processes and the infrastructure needed to support this growth. We have been growing, um, and we became the third largest destination in 2019, and we broke over one million uh, study permits last year alone. Mm -hmm. For comparison. Canada is a smaller country and we have um, 90 plus universities, 100 and something colleges and other institutions in, in higher education. The United States has about 3,600 and they, in the same time period last year, had about 1.2, 1.3 million international students. So mm -hmm. for comparison, obviously our population, the size of our country and so on, the United States and Canada, um, have similar numbers of international students. So, and we definitely don't have the same infrastructure. So again, I feel that um, placing a cap on enrollment doesn't necessarily fix the issues around the, the lack of planning and infrastructure. And particularly because both levels of government have sort of pegged international students as sort of um, part of the economic recovery of the country and, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that, um, yeah, blaming international students on the housing crisis is very far-fetched. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about that, you know, Canada's reputation and things like that. So as you mentioned, the government has planned a 35% reduction of international students within the country. What impact do you anticipate this to have on Canada's reputation as a global education destination? Look, um, I think that most of the immigration, housing, security, healthcare challenges that are currently part of our discourse and the forefront in Canada are not necessarily unique to Canada. Mm -hmm. All these destination countries, of, like we look at Australia, we look at the UK, um, are grappling with similar issues and similar policy responses in a way. So it really depends, in my opinion, how we as a sector and all stakeholders in the sector, all levels of government, our institutions, and national associations, how we intend to better support international students that are here and maintain a more sustainable growth. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of talk about good actors, bad actors, um, and then at the end of the day, international students are sort of caught in the middle. So our inability to address these challenges will not just impact the reputation, but will have long-term implications for Canada for Canada's economic, um, immigration, or even international education objectives. 
I also think that despite the aim to protecting the integrity of the international student system, so that's the reason why the federal government sort of made these announcements, mm -hmm. the way that they went about it, if number one, I feel that likely it or not, there is this sort of uh, inherent understanding or, or intention that international students are to blame for the ongoing housing crisis. So I want to be very clear that to me that it's baseless in a way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, notwithstanding that I do think that the international student program needed to be thought out and, and, and so changes needed to happen. Um, but I also feel that the government's approach of how they went about it has been very reactive and there has been a lot of talk about blunt instrument and the way they went about it. Mm -hmm. So requiring the provincial governments to act in sort of this new policy immediately, uh, reactively, has created a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty in the sector, and it continues to, and ultimately a lot of anxiety for international students. So um, I think that in a more consultative manner, more incremental phase approach could have been perhaps a better way of, of you know, making the announcement, but also implementing the policy. That's, I think all of that creates um, an environment that will have an impact of Canada's reputation um, as it relates to the, particularly the recruitment of international students. Mm -hmm. And I want to dive a little bit deeper here. So how will the reduction of the international student visa impact individual colleges and universities across Canada? Well, I think the impact would vary because the government has established individual, provincial, and, and territorial caps mm -hmm. weighted by population. So obviously much more significant decreases in provinces where the international student population has been more sustainable. So let's say Ontario, British mm -hmm. Columbia, and then the decision to sort of link um, permits and the caps to the provincial population also potentially could have some, I would say, provinces that could benefit from it because they are not um, at that level. They, they're, they're expected caps don't exceed necessarily the current number of, of study permits issued. So mm -hmm. we look at Canada, that could be, I don't know, Newfoundland or Saskatchewan or even Alberta. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it really depends on that. Another piece that um, that it's interesting, and there, this is sort of a, a, a very timely, today is the, the 8th of February. So this morning, uh, there was an article that was uh, published by a great uh, immigration reporter Nicolas Kong and the star um, of a leaked document from the from IRCC's department around the um, trusted institution framework and what would be the matrix that the government would use um, as part of that framework, which right now has been sort of put on. My understanding is that it has been put on hold and it will be done by over the next two years by the time the cap is over. Mm -hmm. But they look at in the matrix, they look at things like percentage of students who remain. Uh, in their program, or percentage of students who complete their program the expected length of time, or the percentage of total revenue that is derived for international students in that particular institution. So things like that, it sort of starts shaping um, how institutions, because we have such a, uh, you know, a, a very broad a, a system, Mm -hmm. Institutions, both colleges, universities, CEGEP, polytechnics, private providers, they're going to be impacted differently. Um, so I, I think that, that the timing of this um, new emerging document sort of 
reiterates that it will certainly impact institutions differently. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that kind of alludes to the next question I have of, you know, at the university level, there's different divisions that offer different kinds of programmings to serve different international audience. You know, there's undergraduate degree programming, graduate programming, international English language education, and so much more. So how can universities pivot to minimize the impact of these changes on their enrollments and their revenues? Look, I will answer your question about the pivot in your institution, but since um, I have the floor, I, I before I even talk about institutions pivoting, I think it is important to, to highlight and underscore the fact that in principle, we are a publicly funded system. Mm -hmm. And in some of our provinces, um, it, as a matter of fact, like I can use Ontario, um, the, the foremost thing that the government can do, particularly the provincial government, is fund institutions accordingly. Mm -hmm. um, we have seen that um, there has been the financial resources of the institutions have been completely compromised and strained over years now. Since the 1970s, there has been the commercialization of international student fees. There's a lot of scholars that have done a lot of work around this mm -hmm. and highlighted how the issue. Um, for instance, in, in 2019, in Ontario, if I look at Ontario, um, they we have had a tuition free. Uh, we had a 10% uh, reduction on our tuition fees and then a four-year freeze. So this is creating really conditions where universities um, and college, but particularly universities, mm -hmm. are already pretty strained. Um, in addition to that, the, go the, the government of, of Ontario created a, a working group. It was called the Blue Ribbon Panel, and they um, did a consultations and, and the outcome of those of that review was that they recommended of an initial 5% increase on tuition and then a recommendation to continue to increase the operating grant by 10%. So I can I will answer your question about what institutions and colleges can do to pivot. Mm -hmm. But the point I'm trying to make here is that we have been pivoting for a while now. Yeah. Because although we are supposed to be a publicly funded system, we are not uh, essentially in, in Ontario, and we continue to try to figure out ways on how to offset these fundamental deficits that mm -hmm. are driven by the province. Mm -hmm. So, to figure out what, what what I think universities can do to pivot, I mean, when you're looking at caps, you can look at um, geographically and programmatically where you can maximize new enrollments based on your quotas. Um, and that can you can do that through like strategic enrollment management. I also think that um, the other the other piece that is important is around retention, student retention. You have like an inherent attrition with students, mm -hmm. but if you're able to, if you have the population is smaller, ideally we're supposed to retain the vast majority of them. So I would hope that there would be a, a, even a more intentional focus on. on uh, retention strategies around students and again like I said earlier this is not unique to Canada right like we've seen mm -hmm. similar things that happen in Australia similar things that happen in the UK um, there's some best practices in other parts of the world so I think that rather than putting it on the universities and colleges to figure out what we can do to pivot I think that we collectively need to look at what's the sector going to do if we want to continue living up to the promise and continue being a leader in international education, which we currently are 
at least from by the metrics of numbers, because mm -hmm. we do have a lot, a very big number of international students here. I think we need to really agree and, and have a shared understanding on what are the objectives, the principles, the values as a country that we aspire to be. So sorry, I'm not answering directly your question, but I think rather than putting the the the, the pressure or or the yeah, rather than making it about the institutions, I think this is more it, it, it needs to have a more of shared approach as a community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a very fair answer. And you did answer the question in a way. So it's <laughs> totally okay with me. Well, that's everything that we have for you on our end. Now we're going to kind of go on a little bit of a lighter note. Now, you are based in Toronto. And, you know, as a fellow Torontonian, I would love to know this specifically. If you're if someone's going out to, you know, downtown Toronto or anywhere in the city, what's a food spot that you would recommend someone to go check out? Wow, that's a really hard question. As you know, um, I understand your pain. There are so many great places uh, and so many great cuisine. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would say, and, and I we get asked this question all the time, as you know. So I would ask first what kind of uh, food they're looking for, what kind of cuisine, and or in which neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Because one thing that um, even going back to with my when I first started uh, working in post-secondary education in Toronto, we used to do um, culinary uh, neighborhood tours for our international students that would be programs in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the great things about Toronto, that we have so many uh, different neighborhoods, ethno uh, clusters of people and cultures, and that obviously informs cuisine. So mm. I don't know, you could go to anywhere to have really good, go to Chinatown and have uh, it, it start your day with a Chinese breakfast, or you could go to have tacos in the Kensington market. There's a, an amazing taqueria there that I really love. And, and then you can go around the corner and have brunch. So again, we could have like a whole podcast about <laughs> what would be a culinary tour of Toronto because Toronto has really, really great places. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree with you there. When someone says, oh, where should I go to eat? I'm like, okay, first of all, there's a series of questions you have to ask the person before you can actually give a recommendation because we're so spoiled with choice. Yes, 100%. Well, Isaac, it was great chatting with you. Thank you so much. Um, really appreciate you taking out the time to chat with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me and looking forward to our continued engagement in this important topic. This podcast is made possible by a partnership between Modern Campus and The Evolution. The Modern Campus engagement platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result? Innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner lifecycle that engages modern learners for life, while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.